Welcome to another episode of the Women's Cycling Weekly Podcast. Today I have an in-person interview. What a treat that is. Um, I sat down in a cafe with a coffee face-to-face with this week's guest and the guest is Lizzie Stannard. Uh, She's had a wild ride in the sport over the past year or so from the ill-fated B&B Hotels team to the disastrous Zaf ordeal to sign in a World Tour contract with Israel Premier Tech Rollons. So it all worked out in the end. But Lizzie has also had one of the busiest seasons in the women's peloton with a whopping 61 race days under her belt. Only her teammate Claire Steele's racked up more with 64. That's a lot of race days. But now Lizzie signed a contract with a new women's EF squad and she's hoping to continue her development and become an invaluable teammate to some of the big names on that team like Alison Jackson and Kristen Faulkner. It's shaping up to be a really good squad. Lizzie and I chatted about all of that, plus her background in the sport, growing up in New Zealand, although she is Australian. We do cover that. It can be quite confusing. Uh, She headed over to Oz and then the States before signing as a stagiaire with Valcar, RIP, in 2021. So we covered all of that. And we also chatted a little bit about Lizzie's interests off the bike, because she's very intelligent, and thoughtful person. Um, She studied politics at university, which shows when she discusses some of the things like the books she's reading and her interesting kind of wider issues within society and politics. But she does have some lighter pursuits. She mentioned baking. But yeah, it was a great chat and I hope you guys enjoy. So without further ado, here's Lizzie Stannard. Hey, welcome to Women's Cycling Weekly, Lizzie Stannard. Hello, happy to be here. How are you doing today? We're actually in person, which is quite a novelty. I'm good, just went for a ride really slow. Not too cold, life is good. Nice. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, because I guess you finished your season now, you've done your off-season, you're just getting back into training. How's that? Um, Good. I felt like I really needed a proper off-season after all the racing and everything that happened this year. Um, and I feel like I was kind of sufficiently bored enough after a few weeks off to start training again, but yeah. Um, yeah, talk us through, because you mentioned all the racing and it was a lot of racing. I think you did 61 race days this year, which is, it's not quite the highest number, was it? But it was up there for sure. Yeah. So I think I did 61 and I think my teammate Claire maybe did the most, Claire Steeles, and she was like 64, 65. But the thing for me was that it was all condensed. Like sort of my first race with Israel Premier Tech Roland was the uh, Amstel Gold, so at the end of April, and my last race was at the end of October. So I think that was 55 days in that period, which made it, yeah... Just the way it was kind of organized, I guess, was hard. Sorry. Yeah, because it was like a concentrated period of time. Because prior to that, obviously, you were contracted with the Zaf, the infamous Zaf team. Yes, yes. So there was like a... I think my first race was National Champs in Australia in like January 5. 
And then I was meant to race TDU and I had a crash. Like I got hit by a car and I was concussed. And then I came back to Europe and did, I was out for three, no, six weeks total. And then I did two or three races with SAF. And then I got in, I got basically banned from the SAF or like team owners from racing because I was one of the riders that went to the TCA. So then I missed like a big block of racing. Okay. So, <laughs> no, it's, I mean, obviously everyone knows now what's happened with what happened with Zaf, but what was that like for you at the time? Like, it sounds like a pretty stressful way to start the season. So stressful. I feel like I'm going to start noticing gray hairs coming through soon. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it was kind of awful. I was a bit, I almost felt a bit lucky that I had that concussion because I was a bit out of everything that was going on, but I was hearing uh, things from my teammates um, that had, I, I guess, been racing with the team and it was stressful. Um, but yeah, I lived like, what, two or three months with about 20 euro in my bank account. So I'm just, yeah, it was hard. I wouldn't want to repeat that. Yeah, wow. But luckily you got picked up by Israel Premier Tech. How did that come about? My agent, um, Ashwin, he worked really hard. He, yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I guess we kind of knew that we had to leave the team and we had to lobby the UCI to let us leave the team and sign with another team um, before the transfer period in July, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as we started the process to try and leave, um, yeah, my agent was talking to other teams, and which is really difficult. Like, all, most teams are full in, well, they're full in December usually, let alone, what, March, so. Because, yeah, I guess that's the thing as well, is, like, not only the internal stuff that was going on, like, with the team, I guess you weren't really, like, experiencing too much of it because, like you say, you weren't racing, but, like, then they're looking for a new team. It's such a weird time of year and, like, all the admin that comes with that. You got, On top of that, you've got, like, the financial stuff. How did you, like, manage that and then keep training and keep, like, focused on on the sport? I don't really know. I definitely, like, remember talking to my coach and I was like, what do I do? And he's like, keep training because you don't know. You know, you could sign a contract and end up doing the Ardennes Classics, which I actually did. But it was really hard. And I remember, like, going for these rides. And maybe sometimes I could do the efforts, but other times I just have to, like, schedule in meltdown time and then keep riding. Um, yeah, and I guess, train like, having to train every day was good and then I had something to do every day apart from like checking my emails or like talking to someone on the phone um but it wasn't training per se it was kind of just like an outlet for your stress at that point yeah just like ticking over yeah I think everyone should schedule in meltdown time for everything every job just day to day I think I need to I agree (laughs) um yeah so yeah you ended up signing for Israel you did race the Ardennes Classics you had like we just said a lot of race days including you raced all three Grand Tours this year what was that like? Uh, Really cool and unexpected given the situation I was in in March yeah I was like kind of really lucky to end up on Israel Premier Tech Roland actually 
Um, yeah, because I got to do all of these races I wasn't expecting to do. And yeah, I think, I don't think many people did all three tours, so like, I feel lucky. Did anybody else do it? I feel like I should have fact checked this before we started this interview, but yeah, I don't think there'll be many, especially because like, on the women's side, it's not such a thing, maybe? Annemiek did. Um, yeah, of course. Actually, most of the Movistar riders, I think. And then there would be, for sure, like, some of the... Maybe some of the EF girls did all three. Like, there would be a few, but not a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I guess it's any team that doesn't really have, like, that much, that many riders. Or, yeah. 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 And which was your favourite, then, of the three? Um, the well, All the races in May, I felt like... I was really unfit and I was racing to get fit. So that was really hard. Um, but it kind of, it felt like a grand tour, I guess. Like, um, I don't know. I really enjoyed the Volta. Um, this is the first time doing the Giro. Um, and as a team, we had like some bad luck. There are some interesting or funny, entertaining, I should say, stories that came out of that from our team. Um, but then and you can share? I don't know if I should. <laughs> um, then obviously the tour is the tour. The tour is really cool. Yeah. The tour is the tour. <laughs> Bing! <laughs> Drink. Um, but it is true. Like, it's just a completely different beast. I feel like ever since it was, like, the first edition, it's, it's like, the level has risen, like, as a whole, across the whole peloton. Is that something you've experienced? Absolutely. Like compared to last year, um, which was my first year in the professional peloton, um, this year has been like a big step up and I've taken a big step up myself. So to like see that everyone else has taken that step up is kind of scary. And now like I think I'm like, fuck, I really have to focus like – I don't know, on my off-season training because next year is going to be even harder and there'll be more expectations and the race. The races are also getting a bit longer, which I think is good. Like, I don't think they should get a whole lot longer. I mean, that's a whole nother kettle of fish, but yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you can, I mean, what do you think about that? Like, do you think... So obviously, like, there is a whole discussion around, like, you know, should we have, like, more stages in the tour or more, like, longer stage races, longer, like, distance and races, like... But I feel like there is a limit to it and that women's shouldn't be the same as men's. I don't know. What do you think about that? I kind of agree. Like, women's racing is different to men's racing. And that's, like, not all, but a lot of it's because the races are shorter. And so they're raced more differently. Like, a women's grand tour is what? I mean, the Giro is nine days tops. It was this year, I think. Um so every day can be raced, like, I guess, full gas, as they say, by the people winning the race. Whereas the men's tour, it's not possible to do that. Um, but I do think for women, like, grand tours should be longer than seven days. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a sweet spot in between, like, what it currently is and three weeks. Like, not three weeks. That's not the sweet spot. <laughs> Please, not three weeks. Even from my perspective, like, I after doing the tour, I'm like, how do people do three weeks of this? Like, how? Yeah, no. I, You guys, it's hard for you guys, too. Well, yeah, obviously. Like, 
It is. It's very tiring. Thanks for acknowledging. Um, to go back as well to what you were saying about um, the level, you say it was. You say it's like kind of scary, like how it's how fast it's growing. But is that also kind of motivating? Is that something where you're like, okay, I've got to try and keep up with it? It's not. Is it? Is it kind of like, oh my god, am I ever gonna like keep up with it? Or is it like, no, I can. I just need to like. I don't know how. I just <laughs> um, like a combination of both like because there are so many so many things areas that I can improve in and having I guess access to more different better resources will make a really big difference um, but then I guess yeah the pace at which the improvement is increasing is like kind of scary and <clears throat> yeah but it's also exciting yeah I mean um, I guess as well because you're like you touched on before you're still relatively new to the pro peloton so I feel like there's probably a lot of room for growth for you I hope so (laughs) because yeah like obviously I did I was quite surprised looking up like results and like just doing a bit of background before this at how new you are to the sport and how like You've only been pro for a couple of years. Um, yeah, talk to us a little bit about your background in the sport and how you came into it. So, I used to do triathlon. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before that, I, like, did... Well, I grew up in New Zealand, and I did, like, every sport under the sun. And we always had something to do with bikes as well. So, like, I did a lot of mountain biking as well when I was a kid. Um, so my bike handling skills aren't not too bad Um, and then in 2014 I accidentally qualified to go to the Youth Olympics for triathlon accidentally accidentally yeah how does that happen (laughs) well there was another girl that was meant she was like hyped to qualify and I just was like going along and she'd beaten me at every other race that I'd gone to and I remember doing this race and I passed her in the run and I was like holy shit there's been a mistake like (laughs) this is not meant to happen and then yeah, I took the spot. But that year I also won the Oceania Championships for like juniors on the road, which is a spot to go to the Junior Worlds. But for New Zealand, that costs your parents like 10K. And Youth Olympics was fully funded. So then I just like got swept up in the triathlon kind of path because they pay, like taxpayer money funded and all. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you did triathlon. And also, of, of course, like coming from or growing up in New Zealand, it's like confusion because you represent Australia, but you grew up in New Zealand. Just kind of explain that briefly. Um, I was born in Sydney. And then when I was like five years old, my like parents and my brothers moved to New Zealand. And I yeah lived there till I was 19, 20. And then I moved to Melbourne just by myself. Okay. Um, so yeah, obviously coming from, I mean, either place is not so simple to get into a sport that's primarily based in Europe anyway. So I guess that's an additional challenge. Yeah, like you kind of, I don't know, like doing a national road series in Australia, when you're like in the, I don't know we call it NRS bubble, it's like seem, it's like a big deal but coming to Europe I realised no one really cares about it which is, sounds really sad but it's just not relevant um, and so you kind of have to make it like 
how I understand it is no matter how many of these like national road series races you win, maybe once upon a time when the NRS was the biggest scene, people would take note, but now you, yeah, you just have to like pick yourself up and take yourself to Europe off on your own back if you want to race, which is a really big commitment, especially when you're young and like you just move to the other side of the world, you know, it's hard. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so how did you go from that, from doing triathlon and being in New Zealand to to doing that? I know you went to America first, right? Yeah, I did. I like had a... I finished my last year of triathlon was 2017 and it kind of like fizzled out a bit. Like I got injured. I didn't have a very good experience racing in Europe. It was like also my first like professional year in Europe um, racing triathlon. Um, and then I kind of, yeah, had a crisis year. I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I, someone recommended that I go and do this race in Canada and they needed like international riders and they would like fund half of your travel or whatever. So I was like, okay. And then, yeah, like that race got me over and it was really great. It's now, no, yeah, they raced it this year, the Gatineau. Oh, yeah. Um, like UCI race, yeah. really good race. Um, and then yeah, I like bounced. Me and another New Zealander like bounced around, and did Dairylands and BC Super Week, and that was really cool. Um, and then I started racing national road series in Australia, and a friend was like, oh, "I have a spare room in my apartment. Like, if you would like to move over instead of having to fly yourself back and forth all the time." I was like, "Okay." So I got like half a job and moved to Melbourne. Half a job. Like a part-time job. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it, the way they sold it to me, it was going to be a full-time job. And then I got there and the hours were definitely not full-time. That's so, the dream, no? <laughs> kind of, except I didn't earn very much money. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So the pay matched the Yeah, the pay matched the hours, <laughs> unfortunately for me. Okay. So, so you're in Australia, you're racing on the national scene. And then how did you go from there to, to racing in Europe? Then COVID happened and I was stuck in a little apartment with my housemate in St Kilda and I was like, what am I doing with my life? And in that time I like finished my degree and I really enjoyed what I studied and I was like, do I want to go and do a master's? Like now's the time to apply and I was like, but I want to try riding my bike and obviously now it's impossible to race here in Australia and I remember like, watching I don't know I think the racing in Europe had just started and it was like the Giro or whatever and I was like I really want to do that and so I like I don't know got in touch with a few people that I knew from Australia who raced in Europe and just sent my CV everywhere and um, someone knew someone who knew that Valkar Traveling Service was looking for international riders and I talked to Davide Arzeni like a few times and the deal was they would pay me 500 euros a month if I came to the other side of the world for a year and a half and they would give me a place to live and I was like yep and then yeah and at that time I still had to because Australia was in I think Melbourne was in lockdown for like 260 days or something ridiculous yeah, it was like in and out of it a bit. Um, but you still ha- you had to apply to leave the country. <laughs> so I remember like I don't know doing all this paperwork, and they were like, "When are you coming back?" And I was like, "Never," because <laughs> I was scared they wouldn't let me out if I was like 
um, I might come back in like a year's time or something. <laughs> but yeah, you literally said never. You're like, see you never, guys. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, and I pretty much disappeared. I guess like I didn't get really get to say goodbye to anyone because I was like, we're still in lockdown. So what a weird time. When you look back, like, how crazy it was. Yeah, to be stuck in your house and just, like, I don't know, waiting for the storm to blow over, I guess. It's strange. So, so you packed up yourself and you went to Italy. We, you were living in Italy. How was that coming from Australia? Um, luckily for me, I'd actually been to that part of Italy before to visit my brother because um, he lived there for a few years. So... Where I first ended up living was near Varese, which is very beautiful. Um, and there was me and another, my, my French teammate Margot, we were living together in this like little apartment. It was kind of fun. And then at the end of 2021, we, cause I like signed for a year and a third, I guess. So I like had the third to, you know, do a few races and then race all in 22. And then we moved to um, a little village near Bergamo called Bodonuco. And if you ask any Italian writer, they'll tell you about Bodonuco. But it's it's very industrial, I guess you could say. As in, it's not very pretty. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's like 30 kilometers from Lake Como. So, and the riding's actually really good. The first, like, 10K is terrible and there are lots of big trucks and you might die. But Not ideal? Not ideal, yeah. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was really lonely as well. I was the only one living in the team house for basically a year. And how did that affect, kind of, like, does that make you think, oh, I wish I was back home or was it, yeah, like, how did that affect, kind of, like, your, your outlook on the sport as, as a whole? I think it made me want to be better so I could get myself out of that situation as soon as possible and not have to, or at least be in a position where I could sign a contract to earn enough money that I like had my own autonomy. I wasn't relying on the team for anything. Yeah. Um, and obviously Valcar, like as a team, was hugely successful. Like some of the top riders have come out of that team now. And what was that like as an environment for you? Um, I think it was really good. Like, the Italians are the best in the world at riding as a team. And so to come from Australian racing into such, like, a team-centric, if you can use that, like, description, environment, I think was a really good introduction to learning how to race. Um, And then also, like, having teammates that were literally the best in the world. I think two weeks after I arrived, Balsamo won the world champion which was like so cool I was like whoa um, so like I had, yeah I had good teammates that I could learn from um, yeah I think I was really lucky actually lucky but you obviously had to be good still to get onto the team now don't be too self-deprecating <laughs> if you say so <laughs> um, and how was the transition obviously because like you raced in Australia and New Zealand and America and Canada which aren't known for they're, they're very different to European racing in terms of like there's wide roads instead of like narrow twisty ones like the bunches are really different did you have any issues with that transition? Um, 
The very first race I did when I arrived at Valka was like a, the Italian have this like national women's elite series, which is actually quite good. And once you do one of those races, you realize like why the Italians are quite good. Um, and that was, I guess the level was a lot lower than any UCI race. So I like started out, like, I think I got second and third in both stages or something. So I started out like feeling good about myself. And then, I mean, it was, it was okay. I don't know. I've always been like not too uncomfortable in the bunch, I think. Um, Do you think mountain biking when you were growing up helped with that, like the skills portion? Yeah, definitely. I think so. Um, I do remember though the first world tour race I did was Ron van Drenthe. I probably said that incorrectly for any Dutch people. Um, But... It, and because it, it was like a weird time because it was still a year after COVID, I guess. Um, but I remember my sport director being on the radio being like, Lizzie, move to the front, move to the front. Like, where are you? Move to the front. And me just be like, but how? Like, it's impossible. I don't understand. <laughs> um, yes. So I think, I don't know. I'm better than that now, luckily. Yeah. Yeah, do you think it's like, obviously even this year like you've done so many race dates i guess like you just pick it up like as you go yeah definitely yeah someone was describing it to me as um they're like i don't know everyone kind of has their place in the peloton and when they're i guess unfamiliar people in your like you know everyone at the front kind of knows each other everyone in the middle kind of knows each other and everyone at the back know each other and then when they're like yeah unfamiliar people like this is a big generalization um people are like oh what are they doing there i don't know and so i guess you've got to find your place and then once people know who you are and they also know how you ride i think it's a bit easier yeah interesting okay so how do you get then from being the person who's chilling at the back to being the person that gets to the front how do you climb the ladder good question it definitely helps having a like, different ha- teams have different levels of respect. Um, yeah, so it was actually really interesting doing the races with Zaf because it was obviously a new team. And, um, yeah, it was also, I guess, well, I did maybe three races with them, I think. Um, and the kit was, like, I don't know, it didn't stand out that much. And it was it made it really hard riding in the peloton, trying to ride with your teammates because, A, you had to spot your teammates and be like people wouldn't kind of let you stay together they would like push you around um which yeah going from Valcada to that was like I was like hey that's my teammate don't be rude but yeah it's my wheel get off yeah okay so now do you think that being on Israel like helps with that like status thing in the bond uh yeah maybe a little bit certainly by the end of the year um i think like this year as a team we started like i didn't start the year with israel so i don't know how they were at the start of the year but we sort of found our feet um and our places in the peloton yeah for sure and um obviously next year you're not gonna have much trouble picking out your teammates in the bunch i mean i guess the kit's the same right so for anyone that doesn't know lizzie signed for the new women's ef team for next year are you gonna be in pink 
Are you allowed to say? Probably <laughs> is what I'm going to say. I would be not, yeah, probably, quite probably. It would be very pink. Um, yeah, no, really exciting. Definitely be easy to pick out on the TV screen. My mum will love that. Also, like, safe riding on the road, training on the road. Yes, for sure. Um, and really good, you know, no, I'm not going to do that, actually. Scratch. Um, yeah, talk a bit about, like, how that came about and, like, what a, the difference is. No, sorry, I just had, like, a massive brain fart. Um, yeah, talk us through a little bit about how that came about. Obviously, you've had a, like, successful season and a lot of race days and you obviously, like, stood out to that team. Um, you're also going to be working with female uh, general manager with Ezra Tromp, which is interesting. Obviously, she's come from Yumbo Visma, uh, has a lot of experience herself. So, yeah, talk a little bit about your new team. I'm really excited. Like, I two weeks ago, I think, we had like the you know admin day where we get fitted to everything. We meet. We didn't. I didn't meet everyone. I met a few people, but like. It was really cool to have a little bit of an idea just of how things are going to run and now just seeing like the organization. Like I guess it's, it is education first men's team. It's not like it was last year. So we're using, I guess, everything yeah, the men's team do, which is a great idea really because they've already got the infrastructure in place so you, they don't need to set up anything else. And yeah, it is so good. It's like so organized. <laughs> yeah, because obviously, although you were riding for the Israel team this year, it's not actually linked to the men's team, right? Yeah, there were two separate teams. So I think Israel Premier Tech came on board midway through last year to sponsor the team, which was Roland Cogius, I believe, before that. Um, and but it's got a completely separate owner, yeah. Okay, so yeah, you obviously you kind of met the team a little bit. You you know you've got an idea about um, how it's shaping up. Cause I think actually it's quite interesting because a lot of the time, like a brand new team. I mean, <laughs> Zaf's a terrible example, but like <laughs> when there's new teams, it's kind of like oh, like they start at the like you were just saying they start at the bottom of the pecking order, or it's kind of yeah. like no one's really sure like how it's going to be, but. You kind of just know with this team that it is going to be good and it's got some amazing riders already on the roster and, like, management and all of that structurally. Like, yeah. it's looking really exciting. Um, what are you most excited about with it? Oh, I guess, like like I was saying before, like, the organisation and I think also, like, access to resources as well, which does make a huge difference. And um, riding as well racing with some like really experienced riders because I think all of the teams I've been on have had actually no because I raced with Audrey on Zaf but having like multiple experienced riders I think to learn from um because I that's something I really wanted um yeah so I'm excited for that yeah and in terms of racing um obviously you've had a taste of a lot of different racing this year um what what kind of races do you think you want to like target, or what sort of what are you most excited about to race next year? I genuinely like everything. I should probably like, I yeah, doing a lot of things this year was really good actually. Um, 
I don't know. It's always good to like go back and do races that you've done once before and then do them again and then like it makes a huge difference. I I noticed that this year. Um, that you get to know the the course and like all the points to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and yeah, the girls that have done them like 10 times definitely have an advantage over the girls that are doing it for their first time. Um, but yeah, anything that's like, oh, I don't know. I like one day races and I like stage races. I can't, I, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> She's an all-rounder, everybody. Good for a top 30, if I'm lucky, no, <laughs> on any parkours whatsoever. <laughs> now, come on. <laughs> but is it, you say that, but like obviously, I mean, I think it's fair enough if like somebody is like out there like I just want to be like a reliable teammate or whatever but you must have like some personal ambition as well like or like races that you know you think I want to do well at this one. I would really like to go well at the Ardennes Classics. I think they suit me and especially La Flesh Wallow. Um, so that would be like I guess a personal goal of mine. But yeah I've enjoyed being like trying to be really consistent and reliable and being able to yeah be the person that's there to help my teammates win the race because like certainly this year I didn't have the level to do anything like that but I think I could be there when they needed me to be and I would like to like I guess someone like Loretta Hansen is actually a really good example of that yeah yeah like an a, a real domestic it's quite funny actually the other day um, on Twitter, somebody posted like some poll that was like voting for a domestique, and they put Ode Bianique and Marlon Russo next to each other. And I don't even think Marlon Russo can be considered a domestique at this point. It's kind of not. She she is and she isn't. So I know I know who you mean like the quintessential domestiques, like because Ode Bianique is one, and so is Loretta. Um, who am I? Elaine Shashini, somebody like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah Marlon's an interesting one. Well, I mean, she is. She. She's kind of like the super domestic plus, plus, plus. But also if she got more opportunities to race for herself, she would win way more races. Yeah, I feel like she's a rider where if she was on a, another team, she'd probably be a leader. 100% probably on any other team in the world, she'd be a leader. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, okay. That's, it's quite interesting to hear somebody kind of just say like, I, my goal is to just be like a really good teammate and re- a reliable domestic. Because I think... This, it's an honourable thing to be and I think it's still it, you're a key player um, and I think also like is it a pressure thing is it something where you're like I don't really know if I want the actual pressure of leadership on me to be honest I just don't think I know how to win a race <laughs> like actually like learning how to win a race is hard A, you've got to be at the point at the end like I would yeah I'd really like to have my own opportunities but um like, for someone like me, that's not every race. That's, like, few and far between. But you can definitely create, I guess, like, a name for yourself. Being a person that's always there and, like, doing a job. And these people are always underrated. And I think sometimes when it comes to, like, teams looking at riders as to who they want to take in, they can forget about these people which is also makes it a bit of a dangerous game to play if you're looking for some kind of long-term stability which I don't really have (laughs) um but 
Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. Super domestic status. Oh, uh, yeah. That's kind being of... Like a ma- being a Marlin would be cool, actually. I would like to be like Marlin. Just a cheeky Gunt Wevelgum win in the mix there and yeah. amongst everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> just going off the front by accident and winning. Oops, I chased somebody down. Didn't mean to do that. Maybe it was my teammate. <laughs> Actually, like, just... Obviously, you've done a lot of racing this year. I've said that like a million times, but one of the big themes this year was obviously how SD Works just completely dominated the racing and how other teams kind of flailed a little bit um, in the wake of their dominance. What was that like from the inside? Did you kind of get frustrated with that ever? Like, were you? What was it like to experience in the races? Good, good question. I think sometimes, yeah, like when there's a breakaway up the road and you can see DSM like on the front lining it up to reel it back in and like knowing that SD works are all in the peloton and of course they're not going to do anything because DSM is doing the work for them like I think teams should I don't know like yeah maybe think about it a bit more and like it, it can be, it could be really interesting if everyone was like, we're going to hedge our bets and not chase or like, yeah, we're going to send people up the road, but we're not going to chase even if we're not in the break, like we're not winning the race. Um, yeah, it's kind of like take the risk a little bit more or like play a bit of poker with them and, and force their hand because, yeah, like everyone seemed to be just doing their dirty work for them and then they would just scoop up the win like, cheers guys. Yeah. They're also, I guess it would be kind of, I mean, they do have a lot of the best riders on the world in that one team. And even the girls that aren't winning the races are really, really good. And they would be riders that would get more opportunity on other teams. So it would be, I think, also good if there was a bit more like a depth across the board. Um <laughs> Um, but maybe, and maybe we're going to start seeing that as well as I think obviously more now what there's more money in the sport and more teams can afford to give riders more resources so I think we'll see I actually think next year Ken and Tram are going to have a really good year and hopefully they will ch- really challenge the SD Works dominance yeah I feel like it's been building for them especially over this season they've they've got a new director with Magnus Backstead and they, they've definitely stepped up even kind of Riders that have been on that team for a while, I'm thinking like Kasia and Iriodoma are starting to look a lot closer to winning than they have been for a long time. And yeah, I think a lot of other teams are heading that way too. It's just like you say, it is a depth thing. Um, but yeah, interesting to kind of hear like your perspective as a rider because like watching, it's also like quite frustrating. Yeah. Um, no, I guess I would be interested in hearing other people's perspectives on it too. But and I mean, for, this is coming from me, who's like in the cheap seats, you know, on the, <laughs> the back of the peloton, hanging on, especially at the end of the year after I got sick. But um, yeah, yeah, like someone who's like Cassia, I guess, or Cecily, maybe I don't know, who's like there at the front. Yeah, I feel like a lot of teams this year had um, there were there were certain teams where they were a bit compromised, maybe then they like Trek and FDJ. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, so many people that track are sick this year. Pregnant. Okay, yeah, quickly before we start to wrap up, um, 
What's one thing you've learnt this season that you're going to take into next season? Um, this is probably a bit cynical, but it's also a lesson for life, not necessarily cycling related, but signing a contract means nothing if the other party doesn't do what they've said they're going to do on paper. So, like... Yeah, that's my big lesson from the year. Yeah, it's it's a frustrating one. And I think, obviously, like you say, it, it applies to other areas of life too or other, other industries or whatever. But cycling is particularly precarious as, a, as an occupation when it comes to this stuff. Like you briefly mentioned TCA earlier. Um, what? Yeah, like they obviously do a lot of work for protecting riders, but... There is definitely more that could be done, I think. Yeah, also for staff, I think. Like, I learned a lot about how staff work this year, and I don't also know that much. But um, And they have, like, for example, when B&B hotels fell over, and it's the same with Zaf, like, they have no kind of media hype around them because the writers have media hype, and people are like, oh, you know, where's so-and-so going? What's happening to them? The staff work equally as hard, if not harder, but they work, sometimes they work without contracts um, and no one talks about them. So when things like this fall over and, you know, you have staff that have been working for a team for half a year, then they're like, then what? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true because, like, without them as well, the sport doesn't happen. Like, it can't it can't carry on. And, like, Swanier's mechanics, all these people behind the scenes that, like, don't get the limelight but actually are the foundations of, of teams. So, yeah, that's so true. Where's their union? Yeah, well, coming, hopefully. Yeah. Like, I feel like that is something that I would maybe one day want to, like, get involved in, is, like, the rider rights and stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, obviously, I know you're a rider that's got a lot of interest outside of the sport. Just, like, well, you're laughing, but it's kind of... It's kind of rare, like, to have somebody who's kind of like, I'm not saying everybody's like two-dimensional, boring robot, but there aren't many riders who are, say, politically engaged or they, like, have a lot of interest that have nothing to do with the sport. Um, so, yeah, like, what what's kind of, when you're not training, when you're not doing a million race days, what are you doing? Um, this year, great question. I feel like I'm just rediscovering myself now. But um, I started, well, because this year's team, a lot of the staff spoke Russian, so I started learning Russian, um, which is an interesting language choice, but I'm really enjoying it. And I think the added challenge of having a different alphabet. Um, Definitely the first writer I've interviewed that said they're learning Russian. <laughs> there there are a few like Russian speaking writers. I told my teammate Tamara that next time I saw her we'd be able to have a conversation in Russian, so the pressure is on now. No pressure. Um and then I just started reading a book that I'm actually really excited to read. It's called Oh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. A light read then. A light read, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's really good. And it's about the internet and how all our data is collected and how we basically have no rights. And the fact that I learned, now that we're just talking about this, is apparently, well, this is a, according to a study in 2008, it would take approximately 76 working days to read, like, 
Because you know how you click yes to I accept the terms and conditions? Uh, yeah. If you were to read all of those terms and conditions that you experience daily, it would, yeah, like within reason, um, it would take like 76 working days to do so. And they know that. And they know that. They know for a fact that no one reads the terms and conditions because no one has time. Yeah. Wow. Seems it's, it's like an overarching theme that you're interested in kind of like rights and like that. So what did you study at university actually? Politics. There we go. Yeah. yeah. I know. I really liked it. But I guess sport isn't meant to be political as well. So I think you do have to be a bit careful like what you say. But I also feel like... It's one of those things, like, the more you learn about something, the more you realise you know absolutely nothing about it. So, yeah. You just, you just enjoy learning, I guess, right? Yeah, I really like learning. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Um, okay. I think, we've, I think I've asked you a whole load of questions. Hopefully you've had a, an all right time. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been good. It's been good. It's been nice to have an in-person interview yes. in in this undisclosed location. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it actually. We're actually, yeah, we can say we're enjoying it. We can say we're enjoying it. Yes, in a, in a cafe. Um, what are you gonna do with the rest of your day? Um, well, I am gonna go and make some cookies. She cooks as well. Occasionally. <laughs> what kind of cookies? Uh, miso and white chocolate. I've never attempted this certain flavour, but we have extra miso paste, so I'm going to... Delish. Yeah. Please, please send an update. Or a cookie. I'll send a cookie. <laughs> I was going to make them before I came, but I ran out of time. Oh, you would have had extra brownie points then. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, on that note, I think uh, I think that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely chatting to you. Anytime. Thanks for inviting me. Hello again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Women's Cycling Weekly podcast. I'll be back in your ears with another interview next week. But until then, if you enjoyed listening to this one, then I would love it if you could rate, review and subscribe this pod because it helps other people discover the Women's Cycling Weekly love. I know every podcast always begs everybody to do that at the end, but it really does make a difference. And if you're after more women's racing content and you're not already subscribed to the Women's Cycling Weekly newsletter, what are you doing? (laughs) But head over to Substack and sign up for a weekly dose of women's racing news, content, results, and more. Details in the show notes or just search, I don't know, I guess you can find it on Google or MAMIL, M-A-M-I-L, propeller at substack.substack.com. Bye. A rich man's world A rich man's world